It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here at Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you are tuning in today because we are continuing in our study of Revelation chapter 20. And last week we deviated a little bit as we were setting up this conversation about the Great White Throne Judgment. And this is right coming on the heels of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ covered here in Revelation chapter 20, but really in summary of this thousand-year reign. If you want more detail, of course, we spent some time examining text and summary of, of what's covered in the book of Ezekiel specifically, and there are a number of other references, even in Zechariah, amongst others. Again, as we look at all 18 prophetic books, then we get a better picture of what is forthcoming, and that's why we've taken the many weeks that we have. In fact, uh, we're looking at it almost a year now. We've been in the study of the book of Revelation, and, and we still have some more content yet to cover, especially as we look to the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth and a number of exciting discussions forthcoming. But we're in a bit of a difficult section here because now we're looking at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and what is about to transpire at at the end of this thousand-year period. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, and reread what we just covered over the last couple weeks once more and talk a little bit more about this, because we need to understand the heart of God as it relates to judgment. As we examine the book of Revelation, it is easy to assume that the book is just filled with the wrath of God, as opposed to understanding the the great extent of praise and worship and adoration for the King of Kings, the, the dominion that has been given to Jesus Christ as we look to Revelation chapter 5, the, the many elements of praise and worship and, and so forth that go throughout the entire book of Revelation, and, and of course examining then the judgments that come upon the earth during that time, that is what really can overwhelm us as we examine the judgment, because it just seems uh, beyond comprehension of the type of judgments we read about. But here, now we've seen and studied throughout this text about the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And during this time, of course, we were covering a bit about the the role that we serve as both priests and kings, as a royal priesthood under Jesus Christ. Zechariah then telling us that we come to worship Jesus in Jerusalem, as we come and even celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, that he has his priests uh, serving him in this massive temple, the true third temple that will be established there. It's so big, they couldn't build it today because it covers the valleys, and there are three key valleys there in the, the old city of Jerusalem that would interfere with this uh, this footprint of this new temple. And so if you missed that, please go back, re-listen to those broadcasts, Go to calvaryfountain.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Engage in Truth. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, and reread this. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations, which are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
a very sobering text, obviously. And as we look at this judgment from God coming down on these who have been in the presence of Jesus Christ, he is reigning over the earth from Jerusalem. And these are people who have heard the truth. They have seen him in his glory. And, and of course, this, this glory that we can't even fully comprehend and, and the magnificence of this temple and those who were serving faithfully alongside Jesus Christ, those who were, we believe, harpasoed or raptured away and have received their immortal bodies and are serving alongside Jesus Christ, and all of these who are still having children and families during the millennial reign. And it says here that there is a great rebellion as Satan goes out to deceive once more, and a number that is so massive, it's as if the sands of the very sea that turn against Jesus Christ. The hardness of the hearts that's displayed there is astounding. But that, that's the heart of man. And so let's just talk about judgment here as we set up the great white throne judgment that comes next. We need to understand the heart of God and his efforts to ensure that all have received the truth, that all will have to make a decision that none will be without excuse. We read of God's heart in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And then we read in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, so let's just examine this. As we spoke about this last week, we just talked about it, and, and many of you have even sent various questions and so forth, and I enjoy that very much. Uh, but we talked a little bit about uh, what had occurred throughout time, those who died before Christ and those after, and and in the Old Covenant and New Covenant. And let's just go all the way back even to even before the flood, because even before the flood, the truth was given. God has always ensured that the truth has gone forth throughout all generations, and this includes the time before the flood. You go to 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 to 20 on that, and God had even sent prophets, specifically Enoch, according to Jude 14. So God gave the law and the prophets to every generation prior to, far, to Christ's first coming, to his first coming. So, so this, this knowledge has gone far and wide, and and let me just even take you back to the Garden of Eden for a moment. What was the name of that tree? If you recall, what was the name of the tree that Adam and Eve partook of? The knowledge of good and evil. That was the name of this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's what it was called. And, and that which gives us knowledge of both good and evil is also known as the law. So they knew, and the generations after them knew what was good and what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Go to Romans chapter 1, Ecclesiastes 3.11 on that. So God spoke to Cain about this reality in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. Here's what he says. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So for 1,600 years prior to the flood, men had this knowledge of good and evil and even the words of Adam, Enoch, and Noah. Now, just on a side note here, you should know that there are only about 100 years between Adam's death and Noah's birth. Okay, we often get this picture in our mind that there are huge gaps in history 
And, and that's not the case. In fact, we see a lot of overlap in the patriarchs by God's design or their very close proximity to one another. And so a hundred years, that's all that separates Adam's death from Noah's birth, and during which we have Enoch boldly speaking as a prophet of God. And Noah lived 55 years after Abraham's birth. So again, an overlap there. So God has always ensured that there were those who were alive and speaking of him. It's interesting of Abraham, if we go to Genesis 26.5 for a moment, it says that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now that disproves, if you will, this widespread belief that the laws of God didn't come into effect until 400 years later during Moses' time, especially given to him during the Exodus around 1440 B.C. This would dispel that because in Genesis 26.5, that's a 400 years before this. So what statutes did Abraham keep? And obviously there's a complex system there of my commandments, my statutes, and my laws that Abraham knew well. Now, some have speculated that this may be even the seven laws that are captured in the Talmud. And these were reiterated by Paul during Acts 15, 20, and, and 29 and with regard to the Gentile church. They're, they're summarized from approximately 211 oral laws that were given. And these were called the Nohide laws. And and these were the laws that men would hold accountable before God for 2,500 years until the Mosaic laws of the Torah were written. And this then expanded these to roughly 10, 10 commandments and 613 ordinances. And that's what we get from the Torah laws. So with Adam and Eve... God gave only three commands. Genesis 1.28, we read that. It says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Three direct commands. He then says, Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Apparently, this was too easy. I mean, every man in the world listening to that probably liked those commands. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. I can almost picture this conversation between Adam and Eve here, and you can almost add a southern drawl, like, you know, honey, you're never going to believe this, but God said that we have to multiply a lot. And then I have to go out and dominate this here earth. No, I'm not making this up. You heard what I said. I ain't going to be disobedient neither. So let's get to multiplying. Now, I don't know why he'd have a southern drawl there, but that's probably what he sounded like a little bit here. You won't believe what God's instruction were was here of be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. But then Genesis chapter 2, 15 to 17 comes along, and here's what we read. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend to keep it and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God gave food to eat. He gives him a job in the garden and to name all of the animals. Life is good. But apparently these three rules were too many. And by Genesis chapter 4, the situation has changed, the ground has been cursed, the toxin of sin now pollutes the earth, and from Adam to Noah, the Talmud and the Book of Jubilees, now both are ancient and non-biblical texts, mind you, they state that the three rules were modified into seven directives from God between Genesis 4 to 6 
and then the world goes from bad to worse. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, we read, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the, of the Lord. So with only seven laws, these seven that we're aware of, the, the world came to ruins because of the darkness of the hearts of man. If you go to Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10 on that, you can read more about it. They couldn't even honor God by keeping seven laws, perhaps of even 13, 2,300 oral commands. So deep down, we believe, as Jean-Jacques Rousseau said in 1712 to 1778, is his documented time frame that men are inherently good, as he would go on to say. I think deep down inside, we believe that. But the Bible says clearly the opposite. In, in Psalm 14, 1 to 3, Psalm 51, 5, Romans 3, 10 to 12, Romans 7, 17, Ecclesiastes 7, Jeremiah 17, the list goes on and on. This is not the case. And we naively assume that the majority of people will follow Christ if they have the truth. And this was the argument of the rich man who died and went into Hades in Luke chapter 16, 19 to 31, that if they have the truth, then they'll change their ways and not recognize the fact that man's heart is darkened to truth, darkened to the light. Here's what we read in Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, and was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send to him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest also they come to this place of torment." Abraham said to them, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So throughout time, men have rejected God in pursuit of their own agendas, according to John three nineteen to 20. And despite this, God's heart for people hasn't changed, according to Matthew 13, 1 to 9. So here what we read in Revelation 27 to 9 is, is the truth that's made clear, that men will reject Jesus even after seeing him in all his glory and worshiping with him at his throne for a thousand years, they will reject him in the same way as the angels of heaven who followed Satan 
And we're not talking about a handful here. As we read earlier about the angels, a third of all of the angels followed the deceptions of Satan. And here in Revelation 20, verse 8, it says that the these humans that will turn on Jesus Christ, that they will number the sands of the sea. That's heartbreaking to imagine. Now, let's I think just with some of that, we're prepared to read what we have to catch next, because obviously the Lord wants us to, to read this. He, he's given it as a revelation, not a riddle. Revelation chapter 20, 11 to 15, we read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades deliver, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, John writes of the great white throne. First, it's called great. It is great for three primary reasons. Number one, each person's eternal destiny is here. Not those who stood at the Bema seat of Christ, but those who died during the millennial reign of Christ. These would be, this is a combination of the mortal Christians and non-believers. And those who died in disobedience before the millennium, their destiny is determined and declared with ample proof and reason. And then number two, it's great because it's the final judgment, putting an end to all judgment for all time. And then number three, it's great because of all the unbelievers of all time, from Cain to the final revolt at the end of the millennium, they will all be assembled to face the bar of God's perfect justice. So the only exceptions will be the beast and the false prophet who had already been consigned to the lake of fire in Revelation 19, 20 and Revelation 20, verse 10. Now it's called white because it will be the supreme undimmed display of the perfect righteous justice and the purity of the awesomeness of Almighty God. And you go to Psalm 97, verse 2, and Daniel 7, 9 on that. We know that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, according to Romans three twenty three, And certainly they will see the awesomeness of God and fall short and, and, and appeal in mercy to Almighty God, I would suspect. But judgment is, is firm in this case, and, and certainly it, as it should be. And thirdly, we see that it's it's called a throne because here the Lord Jesus Christ will sit in absolute majesty and sovereignty with all authority to, to issue these judgments. And it'll be Jesus Christ who's the one sitting on the throne who is issuing judgments. According to John 5, 22 to 30, we read, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will, to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. 
For as a father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment. Also, because he is the Son of Man, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me powerful words. Now, John saw the earth and heaven flee from Christ's presence, and we go back to Psalm 114, 3 and 7 on that. And this seems to indicate that we've come to the end of God's dealings with the earth as we know it. 2 Peter 3, 7 and 10 to 12 on that. Now we're going to move to this period of a new heaven and new earth that are on the horizon. And he says in verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now the dead before the throne are evidently the mortals who lived during the millennial reign, the thousand-year period of Christ's reign, and the unsaved of all ages, and they now stand resurrected, according to Revelation 20, verse 5, and Daniel 12, 2. And there are multiple books that are opened in addition to the book of life. So the identity of the other books is not specifically revealed. We can only speculate from a comparison of other scriptures about the nature of these books. And we get that from other verses. So the first book that's open will probably be the scriptures, which contains the revelation of God's holy character, the moral law, the declaration of the sinfulness of man and God's plan of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. This book also reveals that when men do not have the written word, they have, number one, the law of God written on their hearts from Romans chapter 2, 14 to 16, and number two, the revelation of God's this consciousness since creation, if you will, from Romans 1, 19 to 20, and therefore they're all without excuse, according to Romans 1, 20 and Romans 2, 12. So the scripture will be used to demonstrate the clearness of the plan of God and that man is without excuse. John chapter 12, verses 48 to 50 and 1 John three twenty three cover that as well. So the book of life contains the names of God's elect. God will condemn those who are not found in this book. And the second book will be the book of works. And this would be considered the deeds. We covered that in Ezekiel 18. We also spoke about it in Ezekiel 33, in which these the, the individuals will be judged according to their deeds. And deeds is ergon. It refers to anything that is done, a deed, action, or work. It's used of good deeds, as we see in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, evil deeds of Colossians 1 and John's, uh, 2 John chapter 11, dead works, uh, unfruitful works, if you will, of Hebrews 6, 1 and 9, 14, unfruitful deeds, according to Ephesians 5, 11, ungodly deeds of Jude 15, deeds even of darkness from Romans 13 and Ephesians 5, and the works of the law. Romans chapter 2. So God will evaluate their deeds, even every word they've spoken, according to Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. You see, Jesus Christ died for their sins, for their evil deeds, to forgive them and to provide them with a righteousness from God so that they might have a perfect standing before him. But when men reject the knowledge of God and his plan for salvation, they determine on their own merits to stand before God. 
So the book of works will contain a record of all their deeds, both good and bad, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, and have to demonstrate Romans 3.23 that ultimately they're still falling short of God's righteous standards and therefore have no basis upon which to stand accepted or justified before Almighty God. And I would encourage you, maybe we can just wrap up with this here. Romans chapter 2, 2, 11 and 16. Here's what we read. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you have, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and with your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who, by patient continuance of doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And we know that anyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And so that's what this is calling us to, that our good deeds are not for salvation, but because of salvation. That's the only way that we can stand in the throne room of God, even at the Bema seat of Christ, and receive immortality, eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord, not by anything we have done, but because of Jesus Christ alone. Only He can give us good standing with God the Father and expunge our record as we see the psalmist declare in Psalm 103 that He will remove our sin as far east is from the west. And then in Hebrews we read that our lawless deeds He will remember no more. So you have a choice that you have to make today. Will you stand on your own merits or will you stand in the presence of Almighty God with the atoning blood of Jesus Christ covering and removing all iniquity before His presence that you would have life eternal with Jesus Christ our Lord. The decision is yours, my friend, and God is calling. This may be your moment right now as you listen to these words. I implore you, please consider the free gift of salvation before it is too late. We don't know what tomorrow brings. You don't know if this is your last breath. But I would encourage you to get on your knees in a posture of repentance before God right now and call upon the name of Jesus. Declare him to be Lord God, because we see the hardness of hearts of men, that even as they see him, they will turn from him in the latter days. There will be a great apostasy before the final seven years. And even at the end of the thousand year millennial reign of Jesus Christ, we'll see a, a great falling away. Uh, an, an unbelievable sight before Almighty God. May we not be found amongst them. May we be the people after God's heart who serve Him faithfully, who love Jesus Christ our Lord. 
I hope you've been encouraged today. I encourage you to tune in next week again as we wrap up our study of Revelation chapter 20. To learn more about our ministry, go to calvaryfountain.com. Again, calvaryfountain.com. Services are at 10 a.m. on Sunday. We'd love to see you there. God bless you.